This video is brought to you by Passport, a sleek and easy to use Bitcoin hardware wallet that's taking the industry by storm. Stay tuned to the video to learn more. Welcome back to the Bitcoin layer. Today we have a very special guest, Mr. Dan Lawrence. He's the CEO of OBM Inc. Dan, how's it going today, man? I'm good. I'm good. I just uh, I just got back from PTO actually uh, today. It's my first day back and uh, I promise I'm not always this sunburnt, Joe. <laughs> I, I, I figured. Yeah, no, me, me neither. Up in New England, it's really, really difficult to get a sunburn. Granted, the sun's out, but it's only out for, you know, eight hours every day. And it's also negative 10 outside right now. So it's yeah, exactly. Day. So I, I'm, I'm dealing with shock myself. Uh, I was in Florida for like a week or so, and now I'm back into Maryland, which is 32, 34 outside. So I went from like 80 to 30. My body is like, what the heck just happened? And you're sunburned. <laughs> Indeed, it is. It is a bit of an acclimation. One thing I will say, it looks less like a sunburn in this lighting and more like a tan. So, uh, oh, okay, I'll, thank you. Thank absolutely, you. yes. I'll, <laughs> I I'll give that, that small consolation to you, though you may be feeling some pain right now. Yeah, exactly. I am. Thank you, though. Of course. So, uh, so first things first. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, what you do. Obviously, you're very involved in the mining landscape. Um, or, you know, we're going to touch on uh, your product a little bit later. Um, but uh, how did you get into Bitcoin mining in the first place? Good question. So uh, me and my co-founder actually started OBM, our company, uh, back in 2016 or so. We were small scale hobby miners running a mine in a detached garage, maybe about maybe about a little over an hour away from where, where we live. We live in Baltimore. Our mine was right on the border of uh, Maryland and Pennsylvania and some, some S nines uh, kind of running in this garage. And we got tired of having to hop in the car, drive an hour, reboot everything, drive back home. You get back home and you realize, Oh dang, the miner went offline again. So then you got to hop back in the car and drive back up there. And this was like 2016, 2017, right when, you know, I think we were starting to hit, quadruple digits maybe maybe we just broke a thousand bucks somewhere around there on the price of bitcoin and and our s9 started like making a good amount of money so we were like shoot let's let's we need to keep these things online so got tired of driving an hour it took one time where i went up there came back immediately went offline went up came back again and i was like we got to do something so we were we we were software developers still are uh built foreman to help us keep our sanity and manage the rigs remotely and that's that's what it that's where it started so that's our that's our origin story not many people actually know where obm came from i can give you a quick one on that too how we got the name obm let's do it yeah so sorry this is a long intro uh we started in this detached garage and we couldn't we didn't have any internet so we ran everything over an lte modem and we had these Antennas stretched out of the garage, magnets on the side, trying to get these antennas to give us more service. And no matter what we did, we never got more than one bar of service. So that was where we started OBM, one bar mining. So nobody, nobody, not many people know that. So now you know it, Joe. That's been, thank you for uh, bestowing unto me that information. That's actually, yeah. that's actually pretty funny. So All hobby right, miners, so hobby miners with a software background that started building some software to save ourselves. That's fantastic, and you know every every great company starts that way, right? You 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 discover a problem, you develop a solution that that other people want. At first, it was a solution for yourself, and then you figured, wow, this is something that other people could want, and, and now you've developed a pretty cool product around it. That's um, exactly it. 
It's fantastic. And we'll, we'll jump into that in a moment. First, I want to ask you about uh, the Bitcoin mining landscape. So mm -hmm. uh, our viewers are likely aware uh, that marginal miner revenue, uh, you know, the, the revenue gained per each additional unit of terahash uh, is around all time lows, right? Right now of around six cents per terahash. And, and I wanted to ask you, because you have unique insight into what individual miners may be doing and just the mining landscape as a whole. Um, obviously, competitiveness across the network is ramping up. It's purged over the last year. A lot of those unprofitable miners off the network, uh, prices stayed flat, right? But new entrants just keep coming on. And so it's booting those less profitable individuals off the network. How are miners managing to stay profitable, right? Is it, uh, are, are you witnessing, uh, is it largely just very, very low uh, dollars per kilowatt hour? Is it uh, a unique method of electricity production? Uh, you know, whether that's uh, hydro or, or I, I don't imagine it, it's solar. Um, uh, and, and the second question I have is, have we purged the majority of these unprofitable miners off the network or is there still more minor capitulation to come? I think there's probably a lot more capitulation to come. Uh, we see a lot of people looking at other countries. I know Venezuela, you can get very, very cheap power. So that's, I've heard the saying that that's where kind of an S9 goes to die. It goes off to Venezuela and it's just, you know, green pasture of mining at one cent <laughs> per kilowatt hour, something like that. We, 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 we have seen a lot of churn, a lot of turnover, people getting rid of older equipment, newer equipment coming online. I think what we're seeing from our side is a lot of the hobby miners are probably, we, we get a lot of inbound, hey, I need to pause foreman for couple months and we can generally tell from our side that it's probably because maybe they've been mining uh you know their their cost per kilowatt hours just it's not really feasible for them to mine right now so we've seen some some hobby miners falling off but the large-scale players they're definitely here to stay and i think the way that they benefit how they lock in that cheap cost per kilowatt hours we're seeing a lot more participation in demand response which means they're getting rewarded for supporting the grid when there's a you know grid instability or there's a grid stress event and the grid needs extra capacity to return to the customer. So people get paid. That's like an additional revenue stream just from having a, con a constant load. We're also seeing people getting a lot smarter about how they manage their, their risk. So are they buying power real time off of a real time market? Are they buying in a day ahead market? Are they purchasing blocks of power in advance so that they can possibly sell back to the grid when there's, when, 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 the price of a megawatt hour takes off, then you're kind of like almost like a producer of electricity. You can sell it back to the grid real time. So people are getting really, really creative with how they find other ways to monetize, not just the miners output, but it's really kind of their energy portfolio as a whole. And that's where people are really trying to find it's that's how they're driving their cost per kilowatt hour down. Gotcha. Fantastic. There, so, so there's this tremendous amount of uh, sort of innovation in the space by necessity um, to figure out the best way to keep these miners on uh, and remain profitable, just at, as is the case with any other sort of commodity mining operation um, or, or any business in general. You have, you have the incentive to figure out how to make it work um, and through miners figuring out how to make uh, their operations more efficient, uh, it's it's making the Bitcoin network more secure because exactly. cash rate is added even in these times where price is relatively flat. That's that's awesome. exactly it. Fantastic. So uh, diving into a little bit, one of those um, uh, strategies that you mentioned uh, is uh, demand response. 
What is that function looking like? We, we've obviously seen minor curtailment in places like Texas when they've had very uh, un-Texas-like winter storms. They have this extreme snow. Uh, and then ASICs have been able to uh, shut down uh, in order to reallocate that electricity demand elsewhere. So how does that work? How are deals struck between these miners themselves and and uh, the grid per se? What what does the interaction look like there? I'm just curious as to how you know this works from you know a bottom up perspective. Yeah, it's 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 it, it's very tricky, kind of how you participate in demand response. That's something that we're learning from our side because we just try to provide. We're we're trying to determine. All right, maybe a customer in Illinois, how much are they going to make if they were to optimally participate in demand response, certain programs? It's it's very hard to calculate, but depending on where you're located, you can participate in traditional demand response, which would be uh, where you, you don't call up the grid yourself and say, hey, I'm Joe, I'd like to participate in demand response. Generally, you go through somebody in the middle, which would be a CSP. That's a curtailment service provider. And they're the ones that are adding your load to their portfolio and they represent you to the grid or the, the ISO for that region. So if you're in Pennsylvania, they would be representing you to PJM. Um, if you're in Oklahoma, it would be to SPP. If you're in Illinois, it's to MISO. Different ISOs, different grids, diff and, and the CSPs kind of represent your interest. So they know your load profile. They know how much capacity you have. They know what your responsiveness looks like. They also know how the programs are paying and how they're rewarding in each ISO. And then they kind of build a strategy for, okay, you're, you know, you're Joe, you've got 10 megs of capacity, you're in ERCOT, we're going to put you into uh, NCLR non-spin or something like that. And then maybe these other programs you can participate in too. So you generally work with a CSP or a Queasy, which would be kind of the equivalent in ERCOT, Qualified Scheduling Entity. They represent you and roll your load in these demand response programs. And what you're kind of getting paid for is you're an insurance policy to the grid. So without a large controllable load, you rely on something like a peaker plant or something where there's a grid stress, production drops, you have to turn on this new plant and start producing the deficit that you're down. But with Bitcoin mining, you have this large controllable load that's kind of like a peaker plant in reserve where it's sitting there consuming and you've got this consumer that's just always consuming 10 megs. And they say, hey, if you ever need 10 megs or some, or some subset of that, I'll turn off. And then you have 10 extra megs. So you don't have to like increase your production anymore. You just take me offline and now you can give that 10 megs out to the rest of your rest of your customers. So you're kind of an insurance policy. And depending on the program, depending on where you're located, generally you can expect to kind of get a fixed revenue from your CSP based on your load being available. And then when they say, hey, we need you, you're expected to perform. That's pretty incredible. Bitcoiners hate paying insurance policies. And so in a roundabout way, they themselves can become an insurance policy for the state. That is exactly it. That is exactly it. And you're, you have to perform. Uh, that's the only thing that kind of sucks. But it's, it's a nice way to offset some of the... Some, it's, it's a nice adder to your revenue. Because now, if you're in, if you're in ERCOT and maybe you're an NCLR in non-spin, maybe you could expect 
$200,000 a megawatt year or something like that. So those megawatts really, really add up and it can be a nice way to kind of add some profitability. Fantastic. And this is personally so fascinating to me because previously, you know, you, are there any, were there any other prior to Bitcoin, were there any other mechanisms by which, you know, someone anywhere around, let's say the continental United States could be generating, you know, for any given grid, a baseline demand for electricity. And then suddenly in the event of the need for that electricity to shut off their operations without they themselves going on. But prior to Bitcoin, was this at all possible with any other kind of industry? Some, some were. Demand response is nothing new. But what's interesting about Bitcoin mining as a as a as a as a load on the grid the cost to ramp back up is very quick it's 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 very easy to go from fully hashing to fully curtailed within maybe a minute or two and then as soon as the events back over within a minute or two you're right back up to 100% hashing right it's not like you're a factory that has a whole yes. bunch of workers who you need to send home and then bring back that's exactly it otherwise the way that you're participating is kind of you're evaluating, well, how much is going to cost our business? We know we're going to be offline for two days while we get production ramp back up. So the loads weren't as controllable. Demand response has kind of always existed. But this load profile of Bitcoin mining, it's so rapidly curtailable and resumable that that's what makes it this really elast. It's like elasticity on the grid kind of is what you're getting. And it's just the load profile has kind of been unseen before. Some of the programs that people are participating in with Bitcoin mining some of that, like that production to come back to the grid, that's been done traditionally with batteries and things like that uh, in ERCOT. But just the load profile is what makes Bitcoin mining so sexy for the grid and what really makes it kind of this symbiotic relationship between the grid and a Bitcoin miner. It really is remarkable stuff. Now, where are you, where are you seeing this uh, demand response most occur? It, we'll, we'll say in the continental U.S., I suppose. Uh, obviously, we've seen huge stories out of Texas that have broken into the mainstream about Bitcoin being used for curtailment during times of crisis. Um, you know, are, where else in the United States are you seeing this, and are you seeing growing adoption of this? And you know, in, in the mainstream media or on a state level per se, are you seeing are you seeing officials or media outlets begin to recognize Bitcoin uh, as you know, sort of? as you've described it, this fantastic sort of apex form of demand response? It's That's tricky. Uh, we definitely see a ton of it in ERCOT. ERCOT's really unique. And I think that a lot of success stories coming out of ERCOT around preventing things like what happened with the freeze a couple of years ago. There was one recently. Uh, when, when, when success stories come out of ERCOT that are attributable to a Bitcoin, mi Bitcoin mining load coming down, that's what I think helps drive adoption. A lot of incredible innovation happens in ERCOT because ERCOT is a fully kind of self-contained grid where the production and everything and the consumption all happens within itself. So it's not like you can just start buying power from PJM or some other interconnect. So ERCOT's really kind of isolated. So that means that it has problems that it has to solve itself. And that's why there's so, so much incredible innovation on the demand response side, the ancillary services and everything where the, the timings are so precise, depending on the type of program you're participating in, 
you know, you have to shift your load every five minutes. Just the, 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 the precision that you have to participate when you're in ERCOT is really incredible. And, and when success stories come out and ERCOT makes it through a storm or it's a really, really hot day, that kind of publicity for Bitcoin mining really helps drive, I think, adoption to other ISOs too. But we do see a lot of interest in PJM, uh, NISO. People are curtailing and participating in demand response in pretty much every ISO, I think. So it's it's not like it's lacking in other ones. And I don't for think our I'd... viewers, what is, what is an ISO? Uh, what is that? What's the acronym? An independent system operator? I think I got that acronym right? Or service gotcha. and, and are those... It's sort of relegated it's kind of the grid. like ERCOT is relegated to Texas. And yes. Uh, so PJM, yeah, would be kind of the, the middle kind of eastern part, Pennsylvania, Maryland, around in there. NISA would be New York. There's New England way, way up there. Um, New England ISO. Uh, MISO is kind of Illinois in the upper middle. SPPs, Oklahoma, and all kind of right in the middle, kind of mid-Midwest. Um, there's one i.e. ISO, I think that kind of stretches up into Canada a little bit. But those are kind of the collections of states that structure into one kind of ISO that would represent the grid in that area. We're going to take a quick break to talk about this video's sponsor, Passport. Passport is the Bitcoin hardware wallet that you already know how to use. With a gorgeous design and familiar interface, Passport makes it easier than ever to self-custody your Bitcoin. No more sitting at your computer for hours or squinting at tiny screens to try and set up a Bitcoin hardware wallet. Passport eliminates all of that. It seamlessly integrates with your phone and lets you quickly view your balance and move Bitcoin into and out of cold storage. Guys, this absolutely revolutionizes Bitcoin hardware wallets, and we highly recommend that you pick one up today. You can go to foundationdevices.com and use promo code BitcoinLayer for $10 off your passport, or just click the link in the description to tell them we sent you. Now, on with the show. Well, I, I want to talk to you about remote ASIC management. We spoke, mm -hmm. obviously, in the intro, you gave a, a little, a brief preview of how you came to understand remote ASIC management as a necessity for you. Uh, and then, obviously, you built out your firm and your primary product around it. Uh, talk to us about uh, your company, OBM, and its product format, uh, what it allows miners to do. Uh, how it allows people to manage their ASICs remotely, whether this is for the small uh, hobbyist miner or the massive mining farm, uh, you know, what's the utility of all of this, right? How does, how does your product help push Bitcoin mining into the future? So there's kind of where we started. And I think that appeals to a good chunk of our users. And then there's also some, some, some new product verticals we've kind of added that I think to appeal to some of the, the larger players. So I think that Foreman as a whole appeals to hobbyists and also we work with a lot of the publicly traded companies. So it has a, has a pretty wide grasp, but traditionally where we started was remote ASIC monitoring and management. I'll kind of call it traditional, which would be, I want to go to a web page. I don't want to have to sit here and maybe I've got 10 S9s or S19s or something sitting on a shelf in a garage like we had. I don't want to have to open a web page to each one and try to see what's going on. And that's how it is without some sort of aggregated view into the mine. So you're opening each one. It's like checking, checking 10 cell phones to see if you have any text. That would, oh shoot, nope, nope, nope. It's kind of a pain. 
Uh, and then when you scale that problem, or even think, Joe, like if you were to set up your cell phone, what's it take you five minutes, 10 minutes? Imagine setting up 30,000 or something like that. That you, you probably, we wouldn't see it for the rest of your life. I yeah, imagine. I had during the uh, peak of the bull market when it was profitable to be a home miner in Massachusetts, I yep. actually had a small operation in my basement. And I will tell you it, you know, setting up individual miners uh, for me was a chore and I only had uh, 10 or 20. Um, yeah, it fluctuated, moved, moved around between there, and so setting up thousands, I can't imagine. Yeah, so that's that's Foreman's traditional kind of offering. We give you a place where you can go to see how the fleet looks, and then we also give you a way where you can just mass push pull changes, do reboots. Some people kind of wonder why do I need Foreman versus BTC tools, which is the kind of hobbyist tool. Even people use it at scale just for doing management of the machines. The difference between Foreman and BTC tools is we're stateful. BTC tools is stateless. So that means you run BTC tools. It'll say, hey, Joe, I found your 12 miners on the network. Here they all are. Then you come in the next day and you run another tools scan and it says, hey, Joe, I found your 11 miners on the network. And then you say, wait a second, where's that 12th one? And then you run it again the next day. Hey, Joe, I found your 10 miners. So BTC tools doesn't really have state that goes with it. No auditing. Um, you can't tell who did what, stuff like that. Foreman, we're state full. So that means that once we see 12 miners and one disappears, we're going to tell you, hey, one's offline. And this is the one that's missing. So we know what the inventory looks like. We know when there's drift and stuff disappears from the network. We also have auditing too. So I can say, hey, Joe, did you know that uh, yesterday somebody changed the pools on your miners and here's who did it? Good, tricky problems to have when you're running at scale and you have a, a team running the operation. So that's kind of our traditional offering. Moving forward, we've been very, very heavy on the curtailment side because some of those demand response programs we were talking about earlier, some of those are very, very fast acting. So there's kind of slower acting demand response. Maybe you get a call from a CSP that says, hey, you're getting dispatched tomorrow. Let's see, it's, it's 1029 on the East Coast. So maybe, hey, 1029 tomorrow morning, you're going to have to curtail and it's going to be a two hour curtailment, kind of a slower acting. Traditionally, somebody could just maybe go throw a breaker or something like that or say, hey, Joe, we need to have you out to site tomorrow because we're, we're going to be curtailed for an hour. That's slow acting demand response. But then there's also ancillary services, which could be much faster acting. So in ERCOT, that could be five minutes. You're shifting your load. And it's so precise that you can't do that with throwing breakers. You can't say, well, I need to come down 200 kilowatts, so I'll throw this breaker and half of that breaker, you can't really do that. Or maybe you're in PJM and you're participating in sync reserves, which is another one of those programs, and it's a 10-minute notice. So now if you're running a distributed container-based mining operation and you have, say, 50 containers, that means you have 50 breakers, which means that you get a notice and in 10 minutes you have to be off, you have to hire... 10 or 15 Olympic sprinters who probably have better things to do with their time to run through this site and try to throw breakers as fast as they can. So traditionally, we were very focused on minor monitoring and management. We still are. We give you a way to manage the fleet, see the fleet, financial reporting and everything. But curtailment, that's our another big focus for us now. So making sure that people can participate in these very fast acting, very rewarding programs, because without software orchestration, you can't get those Olympic sprinters to give up what they do on TV all the time and run at your site. That's a, that is a tremendous analogy. I have to say, you know, with, with, with one, uh, with one breaker, if you're a, a home miner, sure, it may be, you know, you could, you could do it super simply, but obviously yep. chances are there isn't a whole lot of demand from the grid 
for your, you know, extra ASICs worth of electricity versus these massive farms that really stand to benefit from shutting off their miners during these curtailment periods. And it's really difficult, nay, impossible to do that if you don't yep. have sort of this synchronized ASIC management in, in that sound. It sounds like that's what Foreman is providing. Yeah, it's exactly it. And then depending on how you're purchasing power too, if you happen to be doing index pricing, maybe you're buying real time and you're just you know buying power as it's settled on the market. In ERCOT, pricing settles there's pricing every five minutes, and then there's a settlement pricing every 15, which is based on the average of the last three windows or so. If you're purchasing power real time, in ERCOT, it could go from negative pricing, which means you're getting paid to be online in mining, which means kick on all those S9s, kick on everything we've got, run the space heaters, run the AC and open the windows. We're doing everything. So you're getting paid to consume. But then five minutes later, it might shoot up to $5,000 a megawatt hour. And if you don't have somebody sitting there watching the TV, and then you have your 14 Olympic sprinters ready to run out and hit breakers within five minutes, you will get blown out in five minutes because you'll be paying $5,000 a megawatt hour. And now all of a sudden, all the profitability you would have had for the last month is gone. So it's very, very essential to have software automation. And that's, that's, that's one of our huge focuses now. That's fantastic. It's, you know, Foreman sounds like it's sort of introducing, it's really creating this, uh, this, it's setting the bar in terms of efficiency. Like we're, we're shifting into a, a world where as Bitcoin mining becomes increasingly competitive, as, uh, you know, miners within ERCOT and other, uh, on other grids, uh, the demand for that energy that miners are consuming, chances are those programs continue growing as well. The mining landscape is just becoming so competitive yeah. and, you know, you need to get every possible edge that you can. And it sounds like if you are a large player, uh, Foreman is really, really in your best interest to be using to sort of maximize the potential of your miners. Yeah. Even if you're a smaller miner too, you know, if you have some miners and you're able to participate, if, you, if you're looking to kind of manage your, your risk strategy better and not just purchase power directly from your local utility and you want to be a little more advanced with it, you'll still need software to help manage that too. So uh, it's really kind of helps cover both ends. Some people with maybe 100 miners or so, people with 30,000 miners or so, really comes down to, I guess, how involved you want to be. Because if you're managing your power strategy correctly, you can generally stay profitable. Right on. Very cool. So in that vein, let's talk about really quickly retail. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, you know, for... Uh, well, let's expand upon that a little bit more. So we sort of talked about the, the more large scale mining operations, you know, uh, 10, 20, 30,000 miners. Um, how about the, the smaller, you know, let's say mom and pop operations. Let's say someone has 50 ASICs, 100 ASICs in their shed out back. Um, they've rigged up the shed uh, such that uh, it is cooling. Uh, let's say they're in New England, uh, for example. Um, you know, they, they get, they, they have fans that, that blow the cool air in. Um, what can remote ASIC management do uh, for those uh, types of individuals? What's the benefit of being able to control your ASICs remotely? Yeah, well, I mean, if you have if you have 100 or if you have 10 or whatever it is, not having to check each uh, miner manually, that's that's always beneficial because if you're not watching it, who is? So that's- I recall that's... several, that is a great point. I recall several moments throughout um, last summer and early last summer 
where my dad and I were running the operation, <laughs> we would see that. Oh my God. And, and at the time we were using, uh, I think it was nice hash and the, you know, yep. that, that's, that's what we were using. Um, you know, the, the cheapest of, of all of them. Uh, and we, we would look and it would say that one miner was offline. We were like, well, which one is it? And so we'd have to go through each machine, <laughs> flip it on, flip it off. Okay. That one's not it. Flip it on, flip it off. And every single individual graphics card, we were doing crypto mining at the time. Um, and we mm. were then flipping it into Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it was a real pain. It was a real pain to say the least. Yeah. It's uh, so, so you get the ability to kind of see what happens. Generally also there's a lag between what the miners doing and what the pool is showing. So you're not really seeing generally from the pool's perspective down to the minute data. Foreman's kind of living at the data center with a miner. If it disconnects, we'll know within a minute, hey, I couldn't reach it. So now you get quicker notifications. We also have the ability, because we're running at the data center right there with the miner, you can build out automation on our side too that says, it's very, if you're familiar with if this, then that, that kind of platform where you can build out chained logic. We have something very similar that's called triggers. And you can say if a miner stops hashing for 10 minutes or if it's off, if it says it's missing a hashboard for five minutes, automatically reboot, do that X number of times, send me a notification when you couldn't get me back. So even from even a, a small scale perspective, automation's key. And if you want to stay profitable and you want to keep mining, you need something trying to watch the rigs and keeping it online and hashing. So that's that's probably one of the the, the big benefits that you would have is even at, even at a small scale level. And we're actually free for under twenty five miners, so you can play with all this to your heart's content, do whatever you want, uh, and you could benefit from all the automation and everything too. And then you just get a nice clean dashboard. You see what's online, see what's offline. Hey, I lost a hashboard, or hey, Dad, uh, looks like we lost a fan, which. I had my dad repairing back in the day when we were working on our stuff. So it's, uh, you get all that in one platform. It's really nice. Extremely cool. Extremely cool stuff. Well, Dan, we've, uh, I think we've had a fantastic conversation thus far. Uh, our, our, I think our, I think our viewers are going to find a tremendous amount of value from this and to the, to the people listening who are sort of put off by Bitcoin mining. Um, I was able to do it. I was able to do it for a long period of time, not just the, the graphics card mining that I did initially, but also when I was living up at school, um, I actually, in my dormitory, I was able to set up an ASIC. I was able to set up an S9 and use the school's electricity in order to mine uh, Bitcoin. I hope nobody from my alma mater is watching right now, <laughs> um, but that's what I was able to do. And so even uh, at a hobbyist level, there are still ways to to learn uh, and also, in my case, generate a profit. Um, if you're savvy, uh, you know, really, this is uh, this is a very, very cool thing that you can do. And so this conversation, of course, not only applies to those very, very large miners, uh, but also you, the listener watching, who may, as of right now, have no interest in in uh, in Bitcoin mining. Um, you know, this ideally may change that. So one last thing that I want to uh, pick your brain about, Dan, is, you know, something that I've been stewing on. We've had several guests on the show over the course of the last few weeks and months uh, that have spoken about Bitcoin mining. Uh, we've had on uh, people to discuss with us what's happening right now in the Democratic Republic of Congo at Virunga National Park. They're using their hydroelectricity to uh, mine Bitcoin. Right? Um, we're seeing in El Salvador, I don't know how much those operations have expanded, uh, but obviously they're using uh, uh, runoff energy from their uh, volcanoes in order to mine Bitcoin. And so we're seeing 
nation states, granted very, very small nation states, uh, begin to start leveraging Bitcoin as a method of revenue generation. And in these two cases, it's actually leveraging the environment around them for that. And obviously these are these are huge operations in all likelihood they'll, they'll be they'll be needing and using some form of remote ASIC management. In your mind, what does the future of Bitcoin mining look like? Right? You know, at a nation state level, using Bitcoin mining as a method of revenue generation. Um, what what is your take on what the future of Bitcoin mining looks like? And whatever it is, how do we get to there from where we are today? Well, I'm I'm a I'm a Bitcoin mining bull. So my future, it's uh it's bright. I think that what's happening in those smaller kind of micro grids is incredible, kind of like what, what gridless is doing, uh, where they're really harnessing generation and leverage it's it's fully behind the meter isolated just right on the hydro curtailing the load quickly providing new generational capacity to people in these kind of remote areas it's really incredible what's happening there and i think that that's going to be i'm hoping they come up with one sweet sweet stamp that they can just kind of stamp that model out uh, it's going to be incredible for microgrids. Even at the large scale level, though, I, maybe you just saw the, the press release recently uh, where there was a miner that's now running behind the meter on a nuke, which is pretty, pretty incredible, too. So it's, it's, it's very interesting how power producers from the small microgrid level or even people that are producing at a much higher level are able to find additional revenue with Bitcoin mining. Um, it's, it's, I think we'll see moving forward, there's going to be a huge adoption with behind the meter generation, helping offset renewables, uh, sitting right there, sitting right next to solar arrays, uh, wind, everything. It's, 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 you're going to see a huge migration towards behind the meter to help build out renewables um, and power producers. Anybody that has access capacity, why send it into the ground? And we could just generate some revenue with it with Bitcoin mining while also helping stabilize the grid. So I think that Bitcoin mining is definitely here to stay, to keep it here. We just need legislation and everything to not fight us the whole way through. That's and, and I think it ultimately comes down to our jobs as miners and people that support this ecosystem to educate and educate and educate and success stories around curtailment everything around bitcoin mining needs to we, we need to do the most that we can to make sure people hear hear about it and just quit that whole you know image that bitcoin mining's bad it's it's not bad it's 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 incredible and it's a great solution to a lot of problems that our grid has and i think that if we educate people and and speak well about it i think it's uh it's a big future for us absolutely bullish on bitcoin mining Oh, yeah. uh, what's your what's your take on uh, on the recent uh, uh, I'd call it propaganda from outlets like Bloomberg who have been using celebrities like Cal Penn um, from uh, oh gosh what was it? Harold and Kumar the Harold and Kumar movies they've been using Cal Penn sort of as their propagandist to say that Bitcoin mining is boiling the planet how can how can individuals who come into contact with that sort of stuff how can they dismiss those really silly arguments that Bitcoin miners are boiling our oceans? What, what resources would you direct them to? What lines of argument would you would you advise people to use there? Um, I think that if they if they're if they're making the argument that Bitcoin mining is boiling the planet, I think that 
they're missing out on the fact that it also enables a huge renewable generation build out moving forward to help offset some of that renewable instability. So I think that really looking at, in my opinion, what happens in ERCOT, where there's a huge wind portfolio, huge solar portfolio, Bitcoin mining is helping address a lot of that instability that comes with it. So more Bitcoin mining, more renewables moving forward. I think that it's definitely just noise. And I think that if they really focus on the success stories that have come out of grid stability, um, I think that it kind of addresses itself. We just need to make sure we're, we're being vocal about the successes. 100%. Very well said. Dan Lawrence, thanks so much for coming on to the Bitcoin layer. This was an extremely valuable episode. Uh, and you. I think in the future, as more uh, events unfold across the mining landscape, we'll definitely have you back on. Where can people find you? You can find me. Foreman.mn is our website. MN, uh, we try to start it with, uh, it was going to be mining, kind of like the .io. Now we only, pe people wonder if we're Minnesota, Minnesota. or if we're Mongolian. Uh, we are, it was it was a failed attempt at making the new .io for mining. Foreman.mn, uh, you can always contact me directly to dan at obm.mn and uh, Twitter too. It's at Foreman Mining. Um, I'm the guy that runs that show. So if you ever need me, hit me up there too. Happy to chat through anything. Very approachable. Love to chat mining. Let's hop on a call. All right. Fantastic. Dan Lawrence, thanks again for coming on the show. Thanks and so much, Joe. Thanks, of course. And uh, thanks for keeping it here at the Bitcoin Lair, everyone. Take care. Thanks. Once again, this video is brought to you by Passport, the cutting edge Bitcoin hardware wallet that is so easy to use, you already know how to use it. It's got a gorgeous design and a familiar interface, just like a cell phone. Passport makes it easier than ever to self-custody your Bitcoin. No more sitting hunched over the computer or staring at a tiny screen trying to figure out how to set up your Bitcoin hardware wallet. Passport lets you take self-custody into your own hands. It seamlessly connects directly to your phone so you can view your balance and move Bitcoin into and out of cold storage with ease. You can go to foundationdevices.com and use promo code BitcoinLayer for $10 off your Passport or just click the link in our description. Take care, guys. Talk to you soon.